0: In this edition of hoopsology we welcome for the win and hoops hype writer brian kubrovsky onto the show brian talks about the rise of demar derozan as an mvp candidate the possibility of the WNBA expanding surprise teams in the eastern conference basketball analytics and a lot more As always, you can get in touch with the show through email, hoopsologypod at gmail.com. We are available on Facebook and Twitter, and we are a proud member of the OTG Basketball Network. And now, Brian Kabrowski. He is a writer for For the Win and Hoops Hype. We welcome Brian Kabrowski onto Hoopsology. How's it going, Brian? I'm good, man. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to chatting with you guys. I appreciate you having me on. Appreciate you, appreciate you coming on to the show, and Brian. Just taking a look at your recent articles, um, it was kind of music to my ears to see Demar Derozan even in the conversation for the MVP candidacy. Just because I'm a huge Bulls fan, and just to see the Bulls kind of like in a positive light is <laughs> it's refreshing to see. So um, that really kind of made my day today. And just reading through the article, I just want to ask you. Um, just due to DeMar DeRozan, like, his, you know, his previous pass in San Antonio and kind of be, un, you know, falling under the radar of the national spotlight and now just, you know, I think becoming the leader of this Bulls team. Like, and, and you mentioned in the article that you have the Joker and Durant and Curry ahead of him in, like, the the MVP rankings. What is kind of the the realistic path where DeRozan even having a shot of winning the MVP, even if, like, he corrects the flaws and just has a, like, a even if he continues to rise, does he have like a realistic shot of really winning the MVP or do you think he'll just end up, you know, finishing top five in the voting? Yeah. I mean, you know, I,
1: I think that there's certainly a, sh- a shot. Uh, there's a viable path. Um, you know, Chicago finishes number one overall in the East or best record in the NBA. And it's clearly because DeRozan's averaging 26 a game and, you know, he's, he is shooting three pointers now instead of, like what he was doing before when he was just kind of completely just going full mid range. I mean, the fact that he's at least willing to shoot um, and shooting a little bit better than he had been before. Um, I think both those things suggest that, you know, he, if if, if they have the best record in the NBA and he's the reason before it, I mean, there's, there's plenty of reason to believe that he's a real MVP candidate. Um, I think conversations as early in the season about that kind of stuff, um, you know, can, can be a little silly and like, maybe we'll look back on this and, uh, a year and we'll be like, we're talking about DeMar DeRozan as an MVP candidate. I mean, you know, like, I think we do weekly MVP votes at, at Hoopsite, but I'm sure, I think at one point last year, I probably had like Sabonis somewhere in the top five and he's great, but like, it, can you hold it up for a whole season? Um, you know, I think from from my perspective, like you you mentioned being a Bulls fan. I, I grew up in Los Angeles and um, DeMar DeRozan, you know, plays so much like Kobe um, and that, that was clearly a huge influence for him. And so I really enjoy watching DeMar DeRozan play. Um, I think it's great that he, he embraces a, a different style of basketball than a lot of his peers. Um, and I'm excited to see what the Chicago team does because uh, I actually felt they had the best offseason among the teams that made moves in the offseason. You know, um, they, I think they made so many positive strides in the right direction to improve that defense, too. I mean, both Alex Caruso and Monzo Ball have long been so underrated on that side of the floor. So, Um, I, I was really excited to see what Chicago was going to do this year. And, uh, you know, they
0: came out swinging last year to get Vucevic and, uh, they're keeping that momentum alive this year. So, what do you think the Bulls' ceiling is in the East? It seems like they, definitely the conference is better, but at the same time, we have a little bit of just uh, weirdness going on, at least in the beginning of the season, with the Wizards being on top of the conference and the Bucks being like medi mediocre, and then the Hawks struggling, and then we have the whole situation with the Sixers with Ben Simmons. We don't know what's going to happen with that. Um, and you have you mentioned with the Knicks, you know, improving and like with the Chicago Bulls. Where do you think it's gonna? I know it's extremely early, but I feel like the Bulls are legit, you know, top, you know, six to top five team in the East. I think they're they're pretty legit. Um, do you see them remaining a threat in that mix, or do you think they might fall off? You know, once we get into you know January, February, right and All Star break.
1: Well, you know, I mean, I think that that's. Um... I think even before the season, before I saw how well DeRozan fit, before I saw how well Caruso and Lonzo were playing defensively, I still would have called Chicago a 6-7 seed, you know, at least. You know, that would have been their floor for me, honestly. I mean, in terms of being realistic, I guess the question is, what's their ceiling? And in that case, it's like, can they win a championship, right? And I don't, I don't know if this is going to be the year for that. But at the same time, it feels fairly open, I mean, with, with Brooklyn not having the Kyrie situation figured out with Philadelphia not having the Ben Simmons situation figured out, um, you know, with Milwaukee having two of their best players coming off an incredibly short offseason, season of a ton of mileage by having, you know, Drew and, and Chris both, you know, go to Tokyo and play in the Olympics after winning the title, you know, that kind of stuff can lead to a little bit of a hangover and kind of get you more likely to be a little bit banged up as the season progresses. So, um, you know, I really I think that Chicago's got a shot to make a run in the eastern Conference uh finals. you know, I think that they, you know what they can they can get there. you know, we saw last year with Phoenix, you know, no one really saw Phoenix making it to the championship, but you know you, you get into the eastern conference finals, you're only a couple wins away, and that's what Phoenix did last year. and um you know, I think that uh, I wouldn't predict Chicago to be that this year I, if I were I, if I were putting my money somewhere, it would still probably be you know, with a Brooklyn, with a Milwaukee, honestly, Philly's playing out of their mind. You know, they've got such incredible production from Tyrese Maxey and Seth Curry. Um, I wrote about um, uh, Quarkmas today as well. And, you know, he's had a a really interesting season, you know, with a different side of a role. Um, So across the board, I mean, uh, and that's without Embiid really being around and, and Tobias Harris, not really being around. So there's a lot of teams that I think can make a run, but I think the question um, of their ceiling it comes down to uh, how much um, you know. I buy the shot that can they make it to the Eastern Conference Finals? I would say, sure they can. Like I'm not, I don't have any reason to believe that they can't. You know, and I also think, you know, we'll see Vucevic come back, um, and we'll see that chemistry. I mean, Vucevic is one of the leading, if not the leading, uh, player in pick and pop scoring and overall pick and roll scoring year after year after year. And with Demar Derozan. Um, and Zach Levine capable of running ball screens like that, that's a pretty lethal combination. I think they can pick and roll you to death. And I think that their defense has gotten a lot better. So I've got every reason to believe that they can make it. I I don't know if they will, but I think they can.
2: Yeah, the East as a whole this year is so fascinating, especially here at the get-go with... Unexpected things like the Wizards being at the top of the East. I I don't think anyone had that on their board. Are there any teams that you're looking at more broadly across the East where you see maybe it's fool's gold early, like thinking about like the Cavs, although it seems a little more sustainable with some of the things Mobley has shown he's able to do. But, I mean, the Cavs were hot to start the season last year. Obviously a much different team. But just looking broadly at the East, what are the teams – that you're kind of buying uh aside from you know like most likely yes the Bucks will bounce back I think we all think um so what's kind of a fool's gold team or or a surprise for you well
1: I I would say that you know I don't think the Wizards are going to finish just the one seed this year (laughs) um that's kind of the obvious answer off the shelf um I do I do like Washington I do like what they've done a lot I think that surrounding Bradley Beal with role players and guys who can elevate the play rather than ball dominant guards um is a great way to get maximize you know uh his potential um and I also think that um you know they got the Lakers defensive unit uh you know in KCP uh, in that trade for Westbrook too so um I think that that was a great way to improve some of their perimeter defense by getting Contavious Caldwell-Pope and you know I think I always felt that you know like like Jordan Clarkson before him and like Julius Randle before him leaving the Lakers is tended to lead to some good things for players. Brandon Ingram as well. You know, these are all guys who have won most improved player award or our sixth man of the year with Jordan Clarkson within the last couple of years. Right. And all of them did that after leaving the Lakers and, you know, LA is a tough place to play. Um, and I think that uh, Kuzma showing that he, you know, has obviously gotten a little bit better this year too. He seems to be playing, you know, good brand of basketball, but you know, for, for me, like I, I, I love, I love Spencer Dinwiddie. I I'm based here in Brooklyn and I've, um, you know, watched him since he was kind of a, a fringer player for close. Well, I've watched him since he was, you know, at the high school level, because I'm from Los Angeles. And then I went to school in the Pac-12. So I've watched him forever. But living in Brooklyn, I've watched he kind of really blossom in the NBA level over the last few years. And I just think he's such a great floor general. Um, I think that the way that he's able to really orchestrate an offense, um, see the floor. Um, you know, it's hard to stop a guy who can run ball screens who's, you know, so above six five. We're seeing that um at at every level of play and it's one of the reasons why you know Lamelo's as good as he is and why Cade was number one pick overall and I think that you know we're seeing that um in Washington too where it's like when you've got that height and you've got that playmaking and his, his shooting has gotten better and he's just got a good feel for the game he's a really smart guy um that's a that's a team that can make a real run too um I probably feel a little bit more confident uh in chicago than i do about washington but i don't see washington as the one seed at the end of the season's end um i would say the team that's going to regress the most um it's kind of funny because it's like it it would be philly um except for the fact that they're going to get a bead back so it's like this version of philly is not going to last like there's there's no way that this version of philly can continue to play at this level um but at the same time like they're going to have to be a different version of philly potentially they can get some assets back in a trade Embiid comes back soon any number of reasons but I think that whatever the reason might be um, I would say that you know even if Maxi comes back to earth a little bit Seth Curry starts shooting 40% from three instead of 50% from three um, they might come down a little bit but I think that they'll be fine because I think you know Embiid will be back Toby will be back maybe they'll get some assets back from Ben.
0: Ryan, I want to ask you about another article that you wrote is really fascinating about kind of the, the analytics. And we, we've talked to other experts, too, about how analytics is a, taking an increased part of how um, opponents – prepare for each other and how scouts, you know, prepare for each game. And I just want to ask you for I guess for a casual NBA fan to really um how they view the game, how do you think that's going to kind of incorporate in the future in terms of, you know, analytics in like a day-to-day watching, you know, of a NBA experience. Because I think right now it's kind of, you know, I, I for myself just watching I just enjoy watching Steph Curry go off or, you know, hit nine threes in a row. But it, with your article, it seems pretty more um technical in terms of how the game is broken down so how do you think that's going to be interwoven in terms of how like the viewer is going to be watching the the game in years to come
1: yeah i mean my my advice to somebody um who doesn't necessarily uh know what those stats mean that i was writing about um would be that you know if you're going to cite a stat or reference it have a like try to try to know what that stat is because um you have to know what it's measuring and like what goes into it. Um, and you have to kind of buy that formula a little bit. You have to understand like, okay, I, I see that this is trying to tell me that the team is 3.6 points per 100 possessions better um, when he's on the floor than when he's not. That's what this is telling me. Okay. When I hear something like, you know, for this or that, but I don't know the definition, you know, you hear these things and you're like, yeah, he's got this number four, but it's like, what what is that? So I just think in general, and this goes for things beyond um, basketball analytics, like defining the term before you start using it, I think can be really, really helpful for people. And it's good in debate, you know, it's good in the topic of um, just when you're, when you're chatting with somebody in general about politics, you're like, well, define this concept, whatever it might be. Um, I think that you know, being able to understand what the stats are is important. And when you see, you know, like, and it says like their PER right there, it's like, well, why do we like PER? Why are we using PER? Because the purpose of my article was not really to explain the formulas themselves, but to ask kind of people who I trusted, um, if they liked those stats, if they kind of bought it. And they were like, no, honestly, we don't like PER. Um, and that's kind of one that's the most widely sourced and the widely cited. Um, so that, that was my intention. I, I don't have much of a, a math brain. I use it in my writing because it helps illustrate points. And I understand my concepts enough to write about them. Uh, but at the same time, I don't really think that I want to be somebody who becomes overly technical with my writing. Um, and so by that, now I can kind of point back to these stats and be like, this is a trusted stat. So that's why I'm using it because people like it. Um, but I think that, you know, at the end of the day, like the most interesting takeaway I had from that is one guy who told me, um, that he thinks that the future of stats is going to be more context dependent. So instead of like, um, his PRs catch all one, one stat, uh, is this number, the actual, uh, future of analytics is going to be something closer to like measuring playmaking, measuring, um, certain skill sets. And that way I think you can have a really, uh, stronger idea of who a player is, um, without necessarily, um, you know, watching the games. Right. And also it can help tell a player, um, you know, and learn more about the game, uh, you know, for himself too. Um, and so maybe if you see like, okay, like my passer rating is this low, like I need to maybe work on that more in the gym or I need to work more on this. And then I think it can help you create a more complete and cohesive team. Uh, as well, if you if we started using stats like that, um, rather than teams that, you know, will point to the Los Angeles Lakers, just have a bunch of names that don't necessarily complement each other. Um, so I, I feel that, um, you know, having a low usage guy who's a good playmaker next to a guy like, you know, a high usage guy, like who's going to score a ton of points, like makes sense. So you want guys whose uh, statistical profiles would match each other up. Uh, because they have to kind of play um, on the same floor at the same time, and, and so that's kind of what I think the future of stats going to look like.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. One the one analytic that I see used a lot, sometimes I think it's useful, sometimes not, would be the like per thirty six stats. Uh, when you see like it, it may just be from a player who is like very energy off the second unit, where that per thirty six. You know if if he was playing thirty six minutes, I don't think the the stats would play out that way, you know, when you think of like fouls that you might acquire or just stamina in general. um are are there any I, I guess analytics that you have found to be the least useful generally speaking, or is it kind of mostly just uh, about context as you're saying?
1: Um, Well, well, not on the 36 thing. That I that I will say is I I study the NBA draft pretty closely. That's my favorite topic, Mm. Um, and it's really helpful when you're looking at high school or international tournaments Mm. um, because uh, those sort of things to you want to measure guys based off of kind of similar uh, measure, like kind of leveling the playing fields based off of playing time because it's kind of harder to measure playing time, you know, in a FIBA tournament. When guys are coming in for shorter bouts or whatever it might be so if you use it Mm. standardized where they're all per 36 um including the high volume guys who are already playing 36 minutes like i I find that to be interesting um Mm. but in general it is sort of it it can be misleading um to to put it that way uh and i for for the reasons you mentioned but uh in terms of the analytics that i find to be the least useful um this this kind of sounds funny um but i I think points per game (laughs) (laughs) think <laughs> is the one that is the most misleading um, i think that wow. i think hmm. that uh and this is no discredit to someone like lou williams sure. um but that doesn't necessarily have more value in my estimation than someone like <laughs> d'anthony melton bruce brown someone who comes off the bench and you know gets a ton of steals gets some deflections the, the idea that six man of the year tends to always go to the guy who scores the most points off the bench is kind of insane to me mm. because points doesn't, in my opinion, like, I mean, obviously total points to the team. Um, But when you're shooting the ball 30 times in a game, that means the rest of your team isn't shooting the ball. You have the ball so much. So when you have a chance to elevate the play of players around you, um, that it might be better for the team to actually get a win. So, you know, you look at someone like Andre Guadalla, and, you know, he's not influencing the game with his scoring, but every single place he's been in his career, it's been better than it was before, and it's gotten worse when he's left it. And, you know, he's always played for a winner, um, and it's never been because he's putting up 25 points a game. Um, You know, usually it's closer to, like, 12, and that was when it was good. And, you know, right now it's closer to, like, 3, and it's still – Good. Like he's still like really, really playing a huge role in why Golden State's the number one seed um so far in the West. And I think that that's kind of my my sort of like cheeky answer to your question is you know I think the most misleading stat is, is points per game. Um, you know, but also you know I I said this earlier, but I I really do like feel that if you're gonna cite a stat in your writing or even just casually like. It's you should generally know what goes into that stat, um, and and kind of why you're using it beyond just to say, well, his PER is better. It's like, well, P E R always favors big men. So if you're comparing a big hmm. man's P E R versus Point Guard's PR, like go figure. Um, you're that's kind yeah. of a misleading question. So you want you wanna know why you're using that stat and you wanna be able to back it up. Um so it's maybe fine to compare two big men in the same uh, stat like that if you're doing that. But otherwise it's like, what are we really talking about? So um, I, that's just sort of my reading the situation is um, I like, I like the players who tend to play for winning teams, you know, guys who elevate um, the players uh, around them, the guys who tend to play on teams that have really good defense, you know, um, a lot of times you could be a huge scorer, huge volume scorer but if you're giving up just as many points on the other end, it doesn't matter.
2: Yeah, that's fascinating. I I love that point. What would be the way to approach that from like a statistical standpoint in kind of reframing the six-man, you know, stereotypical award winner? Like, is is there like wins above replacement or like win shares, stats like that that come into play? Or what do you think, uh, based on what we have available to us now, would be kind of the the best way to look at that or maybe like reframe our perception of six man.
1: Yeah. I mean when you look at the Knicks right now, you see that their second unit is just playing better than their first unit, you know. <laughs> uh their starting lineup like is being outscored by their second unit. And it's like for me, like I would look at if I were doing evaluations, I would look at um, you know, raw plus minus, but I'd also look at mm-hmm. um RAPM, which is a similar version of plus minus, but you know, with a little bit more uh Uh, Mathematics applied to it um, in a way that kind of—I don't necessarily know what the what that looks like, but I know that it makes sense for people who do know what it looks like. So I trust it. But um, you know, I think that you know the idea of guys who can come in and you know uh, hold the other team to fewer points when you're out there. um, You know, make some make some key plays, some winning plays. um, You know, those are those are the kind of guys who who tend to show up. You know, um, you know higher in the plus-minus rankings, higher in the uh, rankings of, you know, uh, just things like efficiency, um, you know, guys who aren't just chucking up a ton of points, a ton of shots, um, you know, guys who get rebounds, steals, blocks, you know, more more well-rounded players than just volume scorers. Um, so I wouldn't just say, you know, plus minus, because that's sort of a misleading stat, too, because it's like, well, it's not my fault that I play in the second unit with a bunch of scrubs, or my first unit is this, or whatever, like, there, there's problems with that, too. So um, I think that for me it would be composite metric and a lot of the a lot of the catch-all stats that I look at um do factor in both you know both like the score when you're on the court but also like your contributions to it so uh it has to, i think you know a blend of everything is important but that's kind of why it's like when you look at it from a blend perspective, I don't think very many people would argue in favor of Lou Williams for for you know much longer because it's like as good as he is that is sort of the thing that he does is, is he shoots and he shoots in a variety of ways he can score in a variety of ways but you know what else does he do and you know i when i apply that to the draft it's like i want someone who can do at least one or two things at an elite nba level so uh, lou will can obviously score the ball in elite level so that's a draftable prospect someone who's similar to lou will but You know, I also would be looking for someone who's an elite rim protector or elite at one thing or elite at another thing or whatever it might be. So, you know, if you have if you're an elite playmaker who can also, you know, hold his own defensively, like that's someone who's interesting to me, at least who I'll take notes of. So, um, you know, those those are sort of things that I keep uh, in mind.
0: Brian, I want to ask you about the WNBA and there's been just some discussion of the league expanding, and I just want to get your opinions on whether this is this is a good idea. I know the WNBA. Honestly, I think since the the pandemic has started, they have benefited probably the most in terms of a lot of the leagues within North America, um, in terms of popularity, in terms of just seeing a general increase in just the viewership of the game. Um, what do you what do you think in terms of the WNBA adopting this idea of expanding into different markets? Is that a good idea for the League. And if you think it is, um, you know, Drake was putting out his feelers. Um, There's been others that have kind of laid their claims in terms of having a WNBA franchise. Which city do you think would be the best placement for that?
1: Well, I think the, for the first place would probably be the Bay Area, just because um, the fact that there isn't one yet in that in that area is pretty crazy, especially with the way the Warriors have met for, for basketball for the last several years. So that, in terms of destination, would be the leading one. But, you know, I wrote an article about how if Drake really wants to see the WNBA in Toronto, he could probably get in on an ownership group. He certainly has enough of that where it's like WNBA teams aren't extraordinarily expensive uh, at least especially if you're just going to be a minority investor. Um, but I think that that sort of pedigree would, would definitely attract um, the WNBA to wanting to have a team in Toronto. So I think he has the influence to do that. And I, I, I wrote about that for, for, for the when um, you know, it, for, for me, um, I think that they had been hesitant to look at expansion for, for a while. Um, and this past few months, um have been saying that now they're interested in doing it. And I imagine they've done the math on that to the point where they feel that now it would be financially um, sound decision to do it. Um, You know, they've got the new commissioner and they've got, um, you know, new ownership team uh, in place around certain teams within around the league. And, you know, I feel that if they have now come around to the idea that they uh, think they can afford, um, you know, to to expand in a way that makes sense for them. Then, by all means, they they certainly should because um, anything you can do to grow the game uh, is exciting, and I think that um, there's so many markets that would really really benefit from uh, having a WNBA team uh, nearby. And um, you know, I think it would just be great for the game to get you know more players from the college level drafted as well. You know, just more you know because with more teams there's just more roster spots. So um, you know, the NBA Global Academy is coming up around the world. Um, you know, you're going to have players start coming in from from Africa and from China um, who are attending those global academies. You know, we're starting to see that um, at the NBA level. Um, I don't know if we got any. Yes, Josh Giddy. Josh Giddey was an NBA global academy uh, student. And then next year we're going to have a few more um, with Ben Mathurin from Arizona, Dyson Daniels from the G League Elite. Um, you know, these these sort of players or G League Knight, um, These sort of players are our guys who are. You know really really focusing um you know on basketball at a young age and i think that um you know that's happening the global academy is having for for boys basketball it's happening for girls basketball as well so we're going to get a new wave of uh prospects from around the world um and i think when we do that you know that means that there's going to be more roster spots that are going to be needed one day uh so you know that's in the bay that's in the bay uh, if it's in toronto it's in toronto um you know i think that uh, we we've got a ton of rising stars on WNBA um and and they're really, really talented players.
2: Yeah, it seems like the league is as deep as it's been in its history. I mean, given all the names that you can read off of, uh, just from WNBA All-Stars that I think even the casual basketball fan is is fairly familiar with, even if they're not regular viewers of the WNBA. I mean, you've certainly heard of Diana Taurasi. You've certainly probably heard of Brianna Stewart. Um, you know, Sue Bird, several others. Um, is there kind of a a calculation? You mentioned you know they've they've probably done the math. Um, And I would assume, you know, expanding the WNBA is necessary too, because you just need to kind of cast a larger net to draw more fans in from these major markets. I mean, you mentioned the Bay Area being a a fairly large market and makes sense with the basketball um, culture in there. Um, is, Is there... Really, much of a risk given the support of the NBA into casting that net into uh, you know another franchise or two.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that they want to make sure that you know no one's going to go broke on a WNBA team, and so they want to make whatever they can do uh, to really make sure that they've got uh, enough of a fan base and enough of a local market that people are going to go to the game. So it's not um and I, and I think that in, in almost all these markets we're talking about people will go to the games so it's like not a concern that will lead them to uh saying no but i think that they have to look at these things and say okay maybe yes um but you know being cautious is probably uh the approach that makes sense when you're when you're dealing with the livelihoods of not only those people but also people you know that work in the arenas and concessions and security and this and that it's like you don't want to go to an organization um, that won't be able to support itself and then we'll have to flounder after just a couple of years and you know that's not that's not because it's the WNBA I think that would have, be happening in any sport when you're looking at expansion. Um, you know there's a reason why baseball, football, basketball has kind of been around the same number of teams for the last you know however many years like it's been a long time since we've really seen like actual expansion um, in any of those leagues so um, I think these are just things you have to kind of keep in mind and I think that you know the WNBA is is certainly doing their homework, and I think that you know getting two two new teams is, in my prediction, like probably fairly likely.
2: Awesome. Another thing I wanted to ask you about. Sorry, Justin. um, Go ahead you you've done a lot of coverage and, and scouting you mentioned uh your passion for the draft um you've looked at the g league quite a bit and and they've made more of a splash recently i'm a rockets fan so go Jalen green um what is your perception right now of the g league and where this could go in the next five ten years or so is there a world i guess my kind of hope and vision is that the G league provides an opportunity where it helps the most elite players develop their skills and get maybe paid more earlier. And then also kind of helps the NCAA game at the same time, the college basketball game at the same time. But what do you kind of forecast for the next five to 10 years in the G league based on what you're seeing now?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing that I noticed that was really fascinating to me um, is someone like Marjan Bochap. Um, who's on the G League Ignite team this year? Um, you know he did four years of high school in Washington. Well, three in Washington, one in Arizona, all at different high schools. Um, and then uh, after high school, decided to go to um, uh, one of the training facilities in San Francisco uh, to prepare for the combine instead of doing college basketball. Um, but then the pandemic hit, and that you know mm-hmm. didn't work out, and he had to go home, and he went to community college. You know, now looking at he's twenty years twenty years old. Uh, and he's on you know hasn't declared for the draft yet um and he's playing for the g league ignite team and i think he's been the best player um by by a large margin uh so far this season so i think that that's kind of an interesting path um that we haven't really seen before is you know we saw a lot of elite high school players who just wanted to forego college but for him it was like he kind of already elapsed his eligibility uh in some ways um by doing the training facility that he was doing um and you know this is a path for him to get back into the game um in a way that's really preparing him uh to to get back on track and to get you know playing at a high level. but when he came back to Washington after leaving the the bay area, um I know for you know that he was considering walking away from the game completely and the fact that he's now playing you know with the g league and um you know playing at an elite level and he's still only 20 years old and is now back on the radars of draft prospects. Uh, you know, and you know all these scouts are taking a look at him all the time um makes a a really great path to uh, you know, get noticed. And, you know, I think for scouts, it's great to have all these players in one place. And, you know, for for younger players who have already been drafted, um, you know, not just the G League night thing, but also when you look at uh, the examples of, you know, just guys who are coming through the G League and, and, and grinding it out and getting better. You know, um, there are guys who are just playing at the G League level now um, who are eventually going to be, you know, in NBA rotations. And that'll happen sooner than later. And, um, you know, I think that, only so many minutes you can give to your nba roster and you know a lot of veterans have earned those minutes which means that for the guys to get reps you know it's good to play in the g league so you can actually get uh, some opportunity to play on the ball a little bit um maybe work on a skill you hadn't used before and you know go out there and, and really ball for for a little bit and get your confidence up and kind of get used to that speed and with those coaches and um you know then go into the nba from there um but those are the things that I that I sort of feel uh would happen with the with the uh with the G League moving forward. I mean, in terms of it having like a rabid fan base, I mean, you know, it's second tier sport, so like it's never necessarily gonna be, you know, like ruckus environment in a G League uh, home crowd, but um at the same time, like I think a ton of players um have learned uh, a ton about themselves by doing the G League path. I think it's gonna be viable path for for players to become future pros. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge supporter of the, of the duty Night program. I think that, um, you know, it's fantastic what they did last year and getting, you know, multiple guys picked, um, you know, in the lottery. And uh, I think that, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens again this year, but I think they've got, you know, a few more first round talent coming out and um, you know, that's going to be more and more uh, path for players to, to go down once they've seen it be successful. Uh, you know, you're also seeing like overtime elite, you know, pop up, in a lot of ways specifically because of this so um you know you're seeing that success and you're saying other people be like you know if they're doing that we should we choose something similar too
0: Brian we appreciate you coming on to the show please let our audience know where they can find you on social media and then let us know about any other project else you're working on in the near future as well
1: yeah um you know my my social media handle is uh Brian Kalbrowski, uh (laughs) spelled the way that it's listed whenever you're looking at this um you know same same name on every platform uh and uh i post you know a lot of the articles that i write there not not all of them but but enough of them um and uh just kind of stay tuned for that um i've got some some cool stuff coming out soon with some uh artists that i've spoken to that are making art about sports that um i think is kind of interesting that i'm excited to share um so those, those should be ready fairly soon and uh i've got you know tons of my regular everyday nba coverage and college coverage and, uh, NBA draft coverage, but also just, you know, things beyond, beyond basketball too, uh, for the win. So, uh, excited to kind of keep that going.
0: Awesome. Brian, thank you very much for your time. Truly appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me.